CR101radio.com, podcasts, and more. So we're going to continue on with the preconditions of intelligibility. But now what we're going to do, you know, you have the questions, and rightfully so. I say we have all these challenges. So how do you know this? How do you know your memory? How do you know your senses are reliable? Laws of logic and all this stuff. But then the question is, how do we know? Right? And unbelievers going to say, okay, well, sure, fine. I don't know, but how do you know? You're no better off than me. And you say, actually, no, that's not true. We actually have, in our worldview, a basis for all of the preconditions for knowledge here. Um, remember, our epistemology from a Christian worldview is called what? It's an R word. Rev- Revelation. Revelational. Revelational. Meaning what? We know things because God has revealed. Where has he revealed himself? In the Bible. In the Bible in particular. So that's what we have here. The preconditions of intelligibility accounted for in the Bible, which is the ultimate authority in the Christian worldview. It's the foundation for the Christian worldview and for the Christian's knowledge, right? So let's look at these in, in general. And if you have it, you can follow along. You can follow up here on the screen. So all, the, so all the preconditions of intelligibility are rooted in God because the knowledge is rooted in God. The Colossians 2, 4, he says that their hearts, 3 and 4, sorry, Colossians 2, 3 and 4, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, this verse tells us, right? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So as we discussed earlier, if you want to start, or if you're going to get knowledge, you have to have a, a proper starting place. And the proper starting place is the reverence of God, the submitting to his word the honoring and respecting of, of what he has said. So we're going to scripture. That's the foundation of the Christian worldview. Same thing, basically, in Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay? So we're pointing out that knowledge is rooted in God. 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer is, yes, he has. Right? These are, he's basically issuing a challenge to the world, saying, okay, bring it on. Bring on your arguments. Bring on whatever you have. Where is the wise man? Where is the debater? God has made foolish all the so-called wisdom the world has to offer. All the philosophies of the world, all the worldviews of unbelievers, all are foolish. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. See, the world, through its own wisdom, doesn't come to know God, and therefore doesn't come to have true knowledge, right, and can't justify it. It's just a foolish unbelief. All right, yeah, so we're covering the preconditions of intelligibility rooted in, in God. So we talked about the preconditions of intelligibility in the last section, right, the ones, the things that are necessary for knowledge that everybody believes in, and the question is, can our worldview, can the Christian worldview actually uh, justify belief in them, right? So that's what we're going to go through, and let me just read these verses just in general. Um, 
So first, that all, all wisdom and knowledge are in God. And that's really vitally foundational to this because that's what the claim is in the Christian worldview is that knowledge is possible because knowledge is rooted in God. And that's the only way that we can actually have uh, knowledge. So Colossians 2, 3, and 4, it says there at the end of verse 2 going into 3, it says, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And what, remember what we talked about before. Since, the, since Christ is the Christians and nobody else's, when the unbeliever is trying to claim wisdom and knowledge, that's not something that makes sense in his worldview. He can't account for knowledge in his own worldview. That's something that's in Christ. But he's not willing to start with Christ. Right? That's the point of apologetics. You have to say, like, if you want to have knowledge, if you don't want to have a foolish worldview, you have to start here with Christ, with the fear of the Lord. Which is what Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You guys know what a parallelism is? Ever heard of that? It's like, yeah. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, there's different types of parallelisms, and this is one of them. Uh, it's a contrasting parallelism, right? You have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But, or sorry, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then you have, on the other hand, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if somebody is not fearing the Lord, what is this verse calling them? A fool, right? Because they're not heeding the instruction and the wisdom of God. They're not starting with revering him and his word. Proverbs 9.10 is another parallelism, but it's a synonymous parallelism. They're saying similar things in each line. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Kind of expanding upon the first line. So if you want to have wisdom and knowledge, you have to know the Holy One, God. In the 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yes, right? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay, so that challenge to the unbeliever, that's what we can do in apologetic. We can say, where's the debater of the sage? Bring it on. I don't care what your worldview is. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The philosophy of, unbelief, of unbelievers is foolish. It can't make sense out of anything at all. And that's what we're going to show as we go and continue on with this argument. All right. And then humans are able to have knowledge because they're created in the image of, of God, the God of knowledge, right? Um, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let's look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Colossians 3.10. And have, and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So as Christians, we're being renewed to, to the... Because the, the image of God, although not lost in us through the fall, it is we are corrupted, right? We're sinful. And, and uh, sanctification brings us back more to be more like Christ in whose image we are created. Okay, so all the preconditions in general of, of knowledge are rooted in God. That's kind of our, our basic first starting point. But now we're going to go through all of the individual preconditions of intelligibility that we've covered and show them in the in the christian worldview Does that make sense what we're doing okay so the first one's pretty easy and you probably already knew this going in how do we 
justify belief in universal objective morality. That what is right and wrong is right and wrong for everybody. Um, how do we justify that from a Christian worldview? Well, it's because God has given his law, which is a fixed standard, not changing, of ethics, and it applies to all people at all times. Right? So you know the Ten Commandments, for example, like on Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Um, he has given that, uh, his law, revealed that, a summary of his law right there. Uh, God's law being universal is taught in many places. Here's a couple. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. So this is God's law applies to everyone. It says this, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Okay, so it applies to every person. Some translations say this is the duty of man. Either way, it's the same idea. God, fear God, keep his commandment is what, is what men, human beings, are required to do. And God will judge all people. They're held accountable to him. Romans 3.19, likewise, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, God's law, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. See that? That universality of it. Every, the law of God says, here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And when any person is put up against that standard, they have no defense for themselves. They're a sinner. They can't say that they're not guilty. So everybody's mouth is stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God as guilty. And then he goes into the gospel from here and shows how Jesus makes it so that we can have peace with God, even though we are guilty. But the point we're making now is the law of God applies to all people in all places at all times. That's what these verses are teaching. Does that make sense? So it's pretty basic. You probably already knew that. But we're accounting for the fact that school shootings, for example, are wrong in the U.S. and they're wrong in Russia and they're wrong. It doesn't matter where you are. They're wrong because every person is under God's law and is required to keep it. Does that make sense? Okay. Secondly, the, the law of God is known well enough to everybody by nature that they are a, they're able to be justly condemned by it. Sometimes we call this natural law. The work of the law written on the heart is what this verse calls it. Romans 2, 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the written law, right? They do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, you have these Gentiles, right? What about this? So, so the Ten Commandments were given to Israel in, in the Old Testament, right, through Moses. But what about the, the uh, Egyptians, and the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and the Persians, all these that would come later on, who, who didn't receive the Ten Commandments directly, they didn't have the written word. Are they held accountable by God too? How so? They don't have the law. How do they know? And this is what this is telling us. They do know the law well enough that God can condemn them for breaking it, because he has written the law in their heart enough that they have no excuse. Their conscience bears witness. Notice it says it either ex accuses them or defends them or excuses them. Isn't that true of the conscience, right? When people do something wrong, they may feel bad for it. But you know what else? They might make an excuse for it when they do something wrong. Our consciences, since we're sinful, we like to pervert things. Nevertheless, God says, 
that's your, it's your sin to do that, and God will judge all people based upon his law. Whether they have the written law or not, they have enough understanding of what's right and wrong that God has revealed to them, even through nature, that he can justly condemn them. Does that make sense? So everybody knows, and that's why the atheist who claims to uh, not believe in God and who maybe, maybe he's never read any of the Bible or knows nothing about it, still has ethical standards that he believes in. Now, sometimes he might be right, like he might oppose murder, and sometimes he might be wrong, like he might be okay with abortion or something. But those are, that's because he's a sinner and he excuses himself sometimes. Right? The point is, though, is that the law of God is known to all, um, and no, there's no excuse. Okay? So if somebody asks, how do you know what's right and wrong? We said, well, God has revealed what is right and wrong in his word. He's given us his law. So if you, again, so if you start with the Bible as the word of God, then you can make sense of what's right and wrong and how we know it. We have a justification for belief that things are right and wrong. On the other hand, if you're a person who does not start with the Bible, then you're going to be reduced to arbitrariness and inconsistency. You believe things are right and wrong, but you have no good reason for it. So it all comes back to starting points. Where are you going to start? With the fear of the Lord or not? With the Bible as God's word or not. If you presuppose the Bible as God's word, you can make sense of ethics. If you don't presuppose the Bible as God's word, you cannot make sense out of ethics. Does that make sense? So the answer is we go to scripture and show it. But you probably knew that already. Now here's some things that you might not know where to go to in scripture. The next one is uniformity of nature. The laws of nature will continue to function in the future the way they have in the past, like laws of physics, gravity, day and night cycle, types of things. So they say, well, how do you know that the future will resemble the past without begging the question? And it comes back to all these things. So for example, um, God has revealed that the sun will continue to measure time for us on earth. So I believe David Hume asked, how do we know the sun will rise tomorrow? And didn't come up with an answer to that. Well, here we have an answer to that. Genesis 1, 14 and 19. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for light in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. So stop right there. Why did God put the, um, the sun and the stars and the moon in the sky, in the, in the space? Tell the times and seasons. Right. So what does that imply? It's going to continue. Yeah, it's going it's to be a continuous pattern that we can rely on, Right. 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, which is the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, which is the moon, and he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So you see that there. Already right in the beginning, he's telling us why he's put these things in there so we can tell time, right? It's given for, day, for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So we have day and night cycle. Light and darkness separated. We know what a day is, right? Years, where you have a revolution around the sun. You guys know what months are based off of? <laughs> the moon. Yeah, so there's, there's things like that. So sun, the, the sun, moon, and stars um, are useful for, for telling time and things like that, and for signs and for seasons. All right, another one, Ecclesiastes 1.5. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. 
right? So pretty basic, but God's saying the sun rises and the sun sets. That's the way it is. Likewise, Jeremiah 33, 20, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be at their point in time, he goes on to say, then you can break my covenant with, with David. Which is quite a thing. He's saying, if you can make day and night stop, then, then you can have a reason to think I'll break my covenants. He's saying, he's made a covenant with the day and night and that it's going to continue to happen in that cycle. Right? So his argument there is, is pretty cool. He's saying, I'm not going to break my covenant with David because as, as, as sure as day and night come, you can be sure that I will keep my covenant. Okay? So that's pretty strong. We know that the day and night cycle um, is going to continue on. Another one, seasons will come and go uniformly. So here we are coming into winter. How do you know that it's going to get colder? Right? And then after that, it's going to get warmer. <laughs> right? We expect season, seasons, right? Winter, spring, summer, fall cycles. Right? How do we know that that's going to happen? Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. There it is. You have a bunch of different things he's giving you. Saying, look, I've put, I've put uniformity into nature. I've, nature functions in a law-like kind of cyclical way in this way. Psalm 74, 17, you have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Okay, so there's God giving the seasons. But, but that's planting and harvest cycles. This is really important to have food. How do we know that we can, how do we know, know how to do the science of agriculture to grow food so we can live? Right? How do we know how it will work doing science like that? Um, Jeremiah 5.24, they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives us rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. You see, there's a time when you plant, and there's a time when you reap, and you know that you can learn that. But how do you know that one year from the other, why well, I, I plant here at this time, the next year it could be a plant in a totally different season. <clears throat> no. We know from Scripture that there is a uniform pattern of, of planting and harvesting cycles. Right? When to plant, when to harvest, all of that. Because God has just said that right here. Jesus even said this. Um, this is interesting. In Mark 4, it's a parable. Mark 4, 26 to 29. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How, he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now think about that. It's so basic, but when you plant a seed, you expect it to grow according to a certain pattern, don't you? Seed, it doesn't go seed, full-grown tree, sapling, you know, it, it goes in its order and it becomes immature. That's what he says here. It's the seed, then the blade, then the head, then the mature grain, right? And then you cut it down. But you can depend upon that. That's the way that God has made the world. That you have uniformity in nature. That you can actually learn things and, and expect things to function in that way. Because God has created the world. He's created it in a way that we can know things and he's revealed that to us in Scripture He's created the world in this way. That make sense? So those are some examples. Yes, God has, how, how do I know the sun will rise tomorrow? Because God has said, day and night will not cease. Right? So there's that principle of uniformity in nature right there. 
Questions about uniformity of nature and justifying it from Scripture? Good? Okay. Let's do laws of logic. Principles of correct reasoning, right? So inconsistencies are contrary to the nature of God. He has revealed that to us. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Saying, I don't go back on my word. Right? I don't contradict myself. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He will not contradict himself. Right? Hebrews 13.8, here's the consistency of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change, just like Malachi says. He doesn't change. There's no inconsistency with him. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Again, he doesn't change. So if God doesn't change, he's not inconsistent, right? So logic being so rooted, but one of the major issues of logic is avoiding inconsistency. Well, God is perfectly consistent with himself, never changes, he cannot deny himself. And because he is, he is not inconsistent, it's, it's unbiblical to be inconsistent. Like at 2 Corinthians 1.18 up there. But as God is faithful... Our word to you is not yes and no. It's a great text. As God is faithful, so because God is faithful, the Apostle Paul's message was not yes and no. He didn't give a contradictory message. Why? Because God is faithful. God's not inconsistent. He, God does not say yes and no at the same time, in the same sense. So Paul says, our message to you, because God is faithful, is, it was not yes and no. See that? That's cool. 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. See what Elijah's saying? It only can be one or the other. Either Yahweh is, is the true God or Baal is. But you can't be trying to hold both together at the same time. Don't be inconsistent. And the people don't say anything, right? They're kind of shut up, I don't know. But he's saying, you have to choose. It can't be both at the same time. See that? Matthew 15, Jesus speaking here, or Jesus dealing with the Pharisees here. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For, for God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I, have, I would, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. See the inconsistency? Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the precepts of men. So the issue is, is that they're saying, well, you need to follow our traditions of washing your hands. Jesus, like before you eat and stuff, Jesus won't do it. Right? He doesn't care about their, their arbitrary traditions. He says, but you know what? You, you claim to be all concerned about God and stuff, but you, but you make up your traditions, which are not from God's word. And then at the same time, you don't keep the actual commandments of God. He's saying, look at your hypocrisy. You're, trying, you're condemning us for not following your traditions, but you won't actually keep the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So you've displaced the true commandment of God by the precepts of men. 
inconsistent. You're being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is inconsistency, and uh, that's not okay. Okay, so inconsistency is something we should not do. That's what this section is telling us. Don't be inconsistent. So getting more detail, the law of non-contradiction is rooted in God, because God cannot deny himself. Hebrews uh, 6.18, so by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God's not going to say one thing and then contradict himself, because that would be what? Lying. But it's impossible for God to lie. Again, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He will not go back on his word. And therefore, because of God's character um, is where he can't deny himself, he rejects contradictions um, and makes, calls them false. 1 Timothy 6.20 says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So he's saying false knowledge, people call this knowledge, but it's not. It's babble. It's contradictory. The word contradiction there in Greek is antithesis, which you've heard before. You have a thesis, and then you have the opposite, the antithesis. He says, avoid those contradictions where people are giving this antithesis to the truth, okay? Because that's false knowledge. Um, and he says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Oh, this is Titus. Sorry, this is Titus. Titus 1.9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Because, for example, this is the elder has to be able to refute those who contradict sound teaching. Think about it. Say, say somebody's out there teaching that Jesus is not truly God. That's a contradiction of the message that the apostles preached. So the elder is supposed to be able to refute those who contradict. Wait a second. Can't they both be true at the same time? That Jesus is God and is not God at the same time? No. That's why he's saying it. Refute those who contradict because the contradiction, those are the people who are in error. What they're saying is not true. See, a lot of non-contradictions rooted in God and therefore we should avoid it, avoid contradictions. The law of the excluded middle is rooted in God as well. Either In the Bible, either a claim is true or the opposite is true. Right? For example, somebody's either preaching the gospel or they're preaching something else, not the gospel. So, uh, Galatians 1, 6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Right? There's the gospel, and then there's false gospel. There's the gospel, and there's the not gospel. One or the other. Right? There's another one. A lot of the excluded middle... Jesus said concerning taking oaths and vows, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond these is evil. What he's saying is you, you say something, if you're going to do the thing, you're either going to do the thing or you're not. There's no third option, obviously. Right? If, I, if I say, I swear that I will tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in court. Well, either I will do that or I won't. Right? Either I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or I'll, or I'll lie. <laughs> right? Those are the options. So he's saying, in Scripture, and this is basic, but either something is true or the opposite is true. And the law of identity is rooted in God, pretty obviously. 
I mean, God even says, I am who I am to Moses, Exodus 3.14. Um, God is himself and he is truth. Jesus says, John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Truth is truth. P is P. Um, you know, a proposition is, its propo- is the proposition itself. Um, all that's rooted in God. Um, he is God. He's not something else. He's not something other than God. Right? So the laws of logic are all there in Scripture. We're told to reject contradictions. Um, God is not inconsistent. He tells us to reject those things. So we can know because God, the laws of logic are rooted in him, they don't change over time because God does not change over time. They're true everywhere because God has created everywhere. He has created the universe, which is what we call everywhere, right? So the laws of logic are rooted in God, and they're accounted for there as well. Does that make sense? Any questions? Okay. So we challenge the unbelievers, say, how do you know the laws of law, how do you know the law of non-contradiction will be true tomorrow? Well, he doesn't really know. Well, we say we know because it's rooted in God, and God doesn't change. Right? He's not going to deny himself ever. He's not going to contradict himself. Any contradiction of God's truth is always false. It's never going to be true. Because he has revealed that. Okay. Make sense? Okay. General reliability of memory. Human memory is generally dependable. Humans are able to remember things accurately and therefore know things through memory. Notice this, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled <coughs> to your brother and then come and present your offering. What's assumed here? He's saying you need, you need to use your memory, rely on it, and do an action based upon what you remember. If you remember somebody has something against you, then the action you need to do is go and be reconciled to him. So is Jesus saying, hey, you better rely on your memory? Of course. If you remember somebody has something against you, you need to do something about it. Go and reconcile. Right? So he, he's saying, yeah, you can rely on your memory. Same thing, Matthew 16, 9 and 10. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? Do you not yet understand or remember, he says. Don't you remember what happened? He's saying you can know things by your memory. Remember these feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000? Do you get it? Remember that? See? Um, here's kind of a, a longer one, but I'll read it. Luke 17, 26 to 32. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, well, how do you know what happened in the days of Noah? Were you there? No, but you remember what? What you've learned, what you've been taught. In scripture, what you've read in scripture, you remember it. So it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So again, you need to rely on your memory to form actions here, to guide what you will do. He's saying when you're fleeing from destruction, you need not turn back like Lot's wife. Remember 
remember what happened and form decisions based upon that. So he's saying, rely upon your memory here. Remember what you learned about Lot. Remember what you learned in the days of Noah. Right? He's expecting that. Very plainly, 2 Thessalonians 2.5, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? The expectation is yes, they do, and they should remember and know what Paul had taught them. Likewise, Jude 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's word here is telling us, yes, you can rely on your memory, and you can know things and form decisions based upon your memory. So that's, that belief is justified from Scripture as well, that we can rely upon our memory and know things from it. Yeah? Okay, questions on that? All right, the general liability of the senses, our sense perception of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, that all those are generally dependable, that we can know things through our senses. So Proverbs 20, verse 12, the hearing eye and the, or the hearing, hearing eye, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So that's he's saying there. God has made you with these senses. Your ear can hear and your eye can see. And the point here in the proverb is, God can see and hear you. <laughs> um, he's the creator of these senses. He can see and hear you. But the point is, we have ears that can hear, and we have eyes that can see. That's what it says, right? He's made them both. God has made them. Here's a good one, 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He's speaking about Jesus here. They heard him. They saw him, they touched him. Three senses right there in one verse, right? Good one to go to. So is he saying we can, we can know things by our senses? Absolutely. It's actually quite vital here. He's saying the Jesus that we knew was truly a man. We could see him, we could hear him, we could touch him. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas says, I will never believe unless I see him and touch him. And Jesus allows him to touch his wounds. And he says, you know what, get me some food. So he eats in front of them too, because the spirit can't do that. He's truly in the flesh. John, who wrote 1 John, remember he's the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. Yeah, he knew he was real. He was physical, okay, through his senses there. Deuteronomy 4.9, only give heed, this is God speaking, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget all the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Again, relying on your senses and then making actions based upon that, what you've learned from your senses. Don't forget what your eyes have seen and then pass along to your kids and your grandkids. Deuteronomy 4.12, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of, the, of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So they heard the voice of God and were, and were expected to know what he said relying upon their sense of hearing. And then 1 Corinthians 2.17, this is the analogy for the church, but the analogy um, of the body um, is what's being talked about here. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And the point is, is that in the church, everybody has a different role, right? The whole body, our human bodies are not just an eye, because then you'd just be able to see, but you couldn't do anything or hear anything or, you know his point is the body is made up of a bunch of different parts and the church is the same way we have different parts and different roles and that's a good thing 
right? But the point is here, we do have a sense of hearing and we do have a sense of smell and the analogy here. So God has revealed that we can rely and make decisions based upon our senses. All this stuff is pretty basic. You might not have known these verses off the top of your head, but now you have them and you say, yeah, okay, right? It's pretty plain. God has revealed that we can rely upon these things. And that all of this makes a knowledge possible. So I know that I'm in this room because on the Christian worldview, I know that my senses are, are generally reliable because I'm starting with God's word. I know who my kids are and my wife is by memory because I'm starting with the foundation of the Christian worldview. I know that my memory can be relied upon and I can make decisions based upon it. Right? I know that science will, I know that gravity will work because God has revealed the uniformity of nature. I know the sun will rise tomorrow. I know it will be night later on. It will get dark today because God has revealed that those cycles are there. I know when something's right and wrong because God has revealed it in his law. I know that the law of non-contradiction will be true next week because <coughs> it's rooted in the, char- in the character of God. See, all, it's really rather simple and simple answer in the Christian worldview but remember the argument, okay? the transcendental argument. The, the Christian worldview must be true because it's impossible for it not to be true. And the reason that's the case is that if you start with the Christian worldview, or the Bible as a foundation, you can make sense of why knowledge is possible in the first place. But if you don't start with the Bible as the foundation, then you can't make sense of how you know anything at all. How do you know that your memory is reliable at all? How do you know that nature is uniform, that it will be uniform in the future, or that the law of non-contradiction will be true next week? If those things are not true, then knowledge is impossible. But yet everybody believes that they are true. The question is, do you have a reason from your worldview? And if they don't have a reason, what's the problem? They're being what? Arbitrary, right? So AIP, you keep that arbitrariness and inconsistency in mind uh, as, as you debate. Okay, any questions? We're good? So you have that handout, you can look over it. I'm sure if you keep it in mind, if you read through scripture, you'll probably come across others that would be relevant. Those are just some examples for each of them, I think sufficient examples. All right, let's go ahead and... Um, and take a, a break again, and then we will um, we'll continue on. Okay, so let's come back at ten uh, fifty. Let's do ten fifty.